This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Professor Paul McKenzie from the History Department at USC, where he is the Caroline McKissick Dial Professor of History. He's my longtime colleague and a specialist in military history, particularly in the military history related to the British Empire. And so, Paul, welcome back to the journal. Always a pleasure, Walter. Let's talk a little bit about Paul McKenzie before we get into World War I. Who are you and where did you come from and how did you get here? Well, it's a rather long and complicated story, uh, Walter, uh, but uh, basically I spent my childhood in England, uh, my adolescence and young adulthood in Canada, uh, went to university in Canada, went to university again in Britain, uh, bounced about for a few years, and finally, uh, 20-odd years ago, uh, ended up at the University of South Carolina. I remember that well. Not only are you a military historian, but you also have examined, shall we say, the civilian side of the war. Yes, yes, indeed. I don't think you can really separate out in the era of the World Wars the uh, soldiers' experience from the uh, civilians' experience. Okay. All right. This war, which they call the Great War, changed the face of Europe and and the globe. And somehow Americans, yeah, we did it. You know, Lafayette, we're here. But that's true. But I think for Americans, uh, World War One is just one of those uh, little wars between big wars. Uh, you know. Uh, that sort of punctuate the decades between uh, one big war, the Civil War, uh, and another big war, uh, World War II. And it it doesn't really register very much anymore. It did in the 1920s and on into the 1930s, but post-World War II, post-1945, you know, it's, uh, as we know, know, Tom Brokaw, the greatest generation of huge number of uh, Hollywood films uh, down to today and Brad Pitt saving Europe in the movie Fury. But that's perhaps understandable in light of the fact that uh, U.S. forces lost only about uh, 116,000 men in World War I uh, as against uh, over 400,000 in uh, World War II. World War II, in short, was a much bigger deal for America than World War One, uh, whereas for the European states, uh, World War One really was a bloodbath. The casualties, given that the war had been fought and fought hard since the late summer of 1914 and didn't end until November 1918, the casualties for uh, European states were very, very high uh, indeed. Britain alone, leaving out uh, the imperial uh, Commonwealth contributions, uh, 790,000 killed. And of course, as in all wars or most wars, uh, the number of wounded exponentially even greater. When you compare American military killed in World War One of around 116,000 with the overall number of military killed of 10 million, America's uh, contribution, though very significant, uh, was such that uh, America didn't suffer that much proportionately. It's interesting as this anniversary is looked at in in Europe, particularly in France, some of the trenches are still there. Oh, indeed. You know, some of the old fortifications. Indeed. And, you know, a hundred years later, farmers uh, in certain areas of what once was the Western Front uh, still have to be careful when they're plowing because they can dig up uh, unexploded munitions. Well, Paul, let's back up a little bit to Europe, say, 1904, 1905, and kind of walk our our listeners through the history lesson of how Europe ended up in two divided camps. 
Well, um, this is, of course, a question related to the big question of the origins of World War One, and that's a question that's been argued over by historians uh, pretty much since the firing stopped, even when the firing was still going on, for that matter. <laughs> uh, but uh, there is no doubt, you're quite right, of course, uh, that the alliance system that arose pretty much in the last decade of the 19th century, in the first decade of the 20th century, did contribute to the outbreak of World War One. If it wasn't a proximate cause, it certainly uh, made war more likely. Uh, as to why these alliance systems developed, historians argue over that specifically as well. But there's a general consensus now that uh, while nobody was entirely blameless, it was German policy that helped solidify two competing camps. Germany, since its creation in 1871, uh, for a couple of decades under the direction of uh, Otto von Bismarck, uh, had managed to kind of square the circle and be on more or less friendly terms with uh, a number of its neighbors. But subsequent to Bismarck being dropped by the new Kaiser, Wilhelm II, Germany took on a new course in foreign policy. A very aggressive. Indeed. One which had the unintended consequence of actually making Germany's uh, diplomatic situation worse, such that its only real friend was Austria-Hungary, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, which was uh, in great difficulties because of emerging nationalism among uh, well, many of its yeah, peoples. I I was going to say, before Bismarck was dropped from the scene, he was trying to make sure that at least relations with the United Kingdom were civil. Indeed. Uh, Queen Victoria was very clearly pro-German, mm -hmm. although that didn't always sit well with her prime ministers. But no, she, no, indeed. But to keep the balance of power and peace, Bismarck understood that. The Kaiser decided that Germany needed to... Have its better. place in the sun, as, it's, yeah. uh, as was said. And so you have this grab for what's left of, of Africa and the South Pacific. And he realizes, I think, that he would like to have a navy as big as that of yes, yes. England. Uh, one of the uh, mistakes uh, that Germany made in, let's say, the 16 years before the outbreak of World War One was to develop a high seas fleet. Uh, a big navy when Germany was clearly a continental power and what purpose could a big navy serve other than to challenge British naval supremacy? The Germans denied this up and down. The Kaiser said it was all for peaceful purposes and so forth. Uh, but in British eyes, uh, both high and low, uh, this was seen as a direct challenge, a direct threat. So not only did Germany make more enemies on the continent, uh, it also made an enemy of uh, Britain, which through much of the 19th century had stayed out of continental affairs. But now there was a naval challenge. And the way the alliance system developed, as you, as you mentioned, that uh, Germany decided to be friends with Austro-Hungarian Empire, a real patch, patchwork, a patchwork empire, a, yes. a patchwork of peoples, sort of a real weak sister, if you will, absolutely on, yeah. on the continent. And then they drew in Italy, which was another yes, indeed. lesser um, power. And, uh, Germany was at the center of what was officially a triple alliance. Uh, but uh, as you say, Walter, uh, Austria-Hungary had a lot of weaknesses, a very fractured entity politically. And Italy was the weakest of the great powers uh, in terms of natural resources, in terms of industry, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And it had been unified in the late 19th century, but it was a very, fra a very fragile state. Well, as Germany became aggressive, France, which, of course, had suffered from the loss in the Franco-Prussian War, began to get more than a little bit nervous. Indeed. Uh, and as a result of uh, that, and as a result of a miscalculation on the part of the German government, that France... Republican France, you know, the France of the Marseillais, the France with 
history of executing kings, that a Republican France couldn't possibly do a deal with Russia, Imperial Russia, the Russia of the Tsars, the last great autocracy, perhaps, uh, in Europe, that they couldn't possibly stitch together an agreement, an alliance of their own. And and, and besides, the Tsarina was German and the Kaiser and the Tsar were cousins. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, uh, among the royal houses of Europe, everybody practically was related one way or the other to uh, Queen Victoria of uh, England. But the Germans, again, as with building up their navy uh, later on, they miscalculated in the 1890s. In fact, um, on the principle, I suppose, of my best friend is whoever will stand up against the most immediate threat, Republican France and Imperial Russia did get together. They did form a military alliance. Uh, They um, overcame, shall we say, their... uh, Political differences. They, they called it an entente. Yes, it ultimately evolved into uh, an entente, uh, an understanding, uh, to use the, the French word entente, that encompassed not only France and Russia, but ultimately Britain as well. Of course, as you get into the early 20th century with Victoria's passing, Edward VII, her son, happens to love France. Indeed. Not uh, Germany. Had, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. In fact, yes, he didn't uh, like his cousin yes. Zilli on the throne. No, no, no. Uh, but he had had some good times, shall we say, in in uh, Paris uh, at various uh, junctures, uh, was something of a Francophile. And uh, as you say, Walter did not get along uh, with, his, uh, with his nephew, uh, Willie. We know now that members of the British cabinet were having conversations with the French in the decade before World War One, kind of under the table. It was not known even to the full cabinet, was it? No. Um, British policy uh, in the first decade of the 20th century was uh, built, one might say, on a certain degree of ambiguity. In theory, Britain uh, was not firmly allied with either France or Russia. This was an entente, just just an understanding. And in theory, no, um, you know, there was no firm set of military talks or plans or anything like that. But you know, under the table, certain political figures and certain military figures had already begun to behave as if this really was a firm alliance and had drawn up military plans. I think I remember correctly that one of the unofficial plans was, even if Britain wasn't actually in the war yet, the Royal Navy fleet was going to sail to the North Sea basically to block up the German fleet. It could never get out. (laughs) Certainly um, in the Royal Navy and in uh, some political circles, it was a strong sense that uh, whatever actually happened, if the balloon went up, if war uh, actually occurred, that... At the very least, uh, the British Navy was going to make sure that the German Navy uh, did not directly or indirectly challenge it. And the first Lord of the Admiralty was? One Winston Churchill, uh, um, in just one of his early uh, political roles. Yes, who who couldn't wait for war to come. Uh, Yes, in some ways, uh, Churchill was like a a small child playing with toys that uh, you know, he, he found war both in prospect and in reality quite exhilarating that you know, this was uh, the well, ultimate exercise of power, I suppose. Paul, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Paul McKenzie of the History Department at USC about the onset of World War One. Well, let's get up to the summer of 1914, and I think it's fair to set the stage. We've already talked about, particularly, the, I think the key here is the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Indeed. The emperor is Austrian. It is a dual monarchy. The Hungarians are held together. They'd like nothing better than to have their own nation. Pretty much, yes. They're the, they're the lot, but then you've got to deal with Serbs and Slavs uh, and Croats and a few Greeks on the... Yeah, not, it's a, a true multi-ethnic patchwork, yeah, and, no and question. The Czechs. Yes. Uh, the Bohemian. I mean, it's... 
quite a conglomeration. Indeed, yes. And particularly in the Balkans, where you've got the Slavs and Serbs, you've got a small independent Serbia and Bulgaria, these other states that have broken away initially from, from Turkey, from the Ottoman Empire. And they are very much concerned about their relatives who are under the thumb of the Austrian emperor. Indeed, yes. The Serbs in particular, uh, or many of the Serbs, living uh, in a small kingdom adjacent to this big empire, felt that uh, a lot of their brethren should be united under Serbia. Uh, There's a strong sense that Serbia had not reached its natural limits, and its natural limits uh, did encompass chunks of adjacent Austro-Hungarian territory and the people there. Like Bosnia, Herzegovina. Indeed. And one of Serbia's sponsors, or big brothers, if you will, was Russia. Yes, yes. You know, part of the great Slav brotherhood, you know, little brother Slav in Serbia, big brother in Russia. Uh, so, yes. Uh, and, and did not Serbia and Russia also have a treaty of some sort, alliance of some uh, sort? Not, uh, I believe, a formal one. Uh, but it was understood that affairs in the Balkans uh, and perhaps in Serbia in particular were ones that mattered to Russia. Uh, in other words, if uh, another great power made a move in the Balkans, then Russia would be obligated to uh, at the very least take notice and perhaps even go to war if need be. So we've got this situation in the Austro-Hungarian Empire that's really something of a powder keg. You know, everyone I think is familiar with the assassination of the Archduke. Mm. But that was just the latest in a series of these things that had been going on for decades oh, of, yes. of, of yes. officials of the empire, including the empress being murdered in, in uh, Switzerland. Yes, yes. You know, we tend to think of political assassinations as uh, something associated with the 20th century, but in, in fact, it stretches back into the uh, 19th century. Okay. So we get to the summer of 1914, and the heir to the Austrian throne is visiting part of their empire in Sarajevo, and he is assassinated. And you might think, well, big deal. You know, this is the sort of thing that might come on page five of the New York Times today. No biggie. Uh, it's a, um, a political assassination. These things happen. It's a small place far away, etc., etc. But to the policymakers in, in Vienna, to the Austro-Hungarian uh, government, uh, this was something of an opportunity. Many of them hadn't liked Archduke Franz Ferdinand and some of his political views. But now in death, he seemed to offer a great opportunity. Uh, now it seemed uh, the Serbs, or at least elements of the Serb government, had been caught red-handed uh, sponsoring terrorism, an organization called the Black Hand that had been responsible for the assassination of the Archduke. And now this seemed to offer the opportunity to deal with uh, troublesome Serbia once and for all. And not only would that deal with the Serbia, but despite the fact that this polyglot empire had all sorts of troubles, they were thinking about, well, we've got, we can expand. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, just take over yeah. Serbia and some more trouble to <laughs> Yes, yes. You know, this is still very much an era where power was seen in terms of uh, land holding. And after all, uh, Serbia, uh, relative to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was, was small, was apparently militarily uh, weak. A great opportunity uh, for a problem to be dealt with uh, once and for all. So the assassination does set in chain a whole series of events. Indeed it does. That leads to Austria giving an ultimatum to Serbia, which basically Serbia agreed to almost everything. Yes, despite the fact that the Austrians meant it to be rejected. The Serbs uh, contorted themselves such that you know, they, they agreed to almost everything. And Russia thought that was fine. And Russia was cool with that. I mean, they but yes. they were letting it known that they were standing behind the Serbs. Indeed. But we need to keep in mind uh, that Austrian policy was based ultimately on the Serbs saying no. 
So the ultimate basically gave Serbia the choice of going to war or becoming a kind of de facto province of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Serbs tried as far as they could to meet Austrian demands, but the ultimatum was designed to be impossible. Ultimately, it was uh, rejected. And the Kaiser had pretty much the so-called blank check. Yes, this was, uh, I think, uh, perhaps at the heart of how the First World War came about in the short term uh, as a result of this big July crisis that blew up after the assassination. The folks in Vienna knew that there was a chance that Russia would intervene if they moved against Serbia. And if that was the case, uh, they wanted to be absolutely sure that Germany, more powerful militarily, would back them. And as you say, Walter, um, essentially Germany, Berlin, the Kaiser ministers, generals gave Vienna, gave the uh, Austrians uh, a blank check. Go ahead. Um, either you win a huge diplomatic victory or there'll be a war, but we'll back you in case anything goes and, wrong. And the German general staff was even willing to look at uh, the von Schlieffen plan. They were thinking about, well, We'll end up fighting a war on two fronts. Absolutely. This is, of course, something that uh, historians have uh, been acutely aware of, namely that not only did the uh, German government uh, back Austria all the way, even if it meant war with Russia, uh, they were prepared to see the war expand into a pan-European war, uh, in part because their military planning was based on only one kind of war, namely one where Germany fought both Russia and France. And obviously, uh, if that's the only plan you have, then you're going to draw in France, whether France wants to be drawn in or not. Britain certainly is not. They're very hesitant to be drawn in, too even Indeed. though they've got that entente. So Austria declares war on Serbia. Russia mobilizes. Germany mobilizes. France mobilizes. Britain doesn't. No, indeed. Now, mind you, their army uh, at this stage was a rather small entity, but Britain was the last to enter among the great powers in 1914, in part because of the ambiguity we spoke about earlier, that it wasn't entirely clear that there was a firm alliance. Well, there was a key vote in the cabinet meeting, but, but well, let's just say the German invasion of Belgium made the difference. It did. It certainly gave uh, those who were hesitating uh, a good excuse. I mean, Britain, along with other powers, had guaranteed Belgian neutrality. The German plan, uh, military plan, the von Schieffen plan, as you pointed out, called for an invasion of France via Belgium, through Belgium. Uh, as soon as German troops entered uh, Belgium, uh, they were in violation of international treaties concerning Belgian neutrality. That certainly gave Britain a, a good moral excuse to intervene, to declare war. And of course, ironically, we now know had the French decided to take the first stab, they were also going through Belgium. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Germany. Yes. Um, right. So the war begins in August and we don't need to get into battles and drums or bugles and drums right now. But by December, at least in the West, the front's pretty much set for the next four years. Is yes, trench warfare has arrived and arrived in a big way. And the war had become something that none of the uh, very confident generals of 1914 had expected or planned for. So from then on, it was a case of, to a degree at least, making it up as they went along. The casualties in individual battles, 100,000? Indeed. I mean, it, I mean, Paul, it's, it's just staggering. It is. But then we need to bear in mind that the Industrial Revolution of the previous decade uh, had, among other things, generated much more deadly weaponry, high-velocity uh, magazine-fed rifles. Poison gas of... By both sides. Yes, yeah. Uh, that actually arose during the war uh, itself as one of the attempts to find the kind of silver bullet to break the trench uh, deadlock. But even before that, even before the war had broken out, um, a whole range of much more deadly weaponry had uh, come online, so to speak. And then there was, of course, the machine gun. Machine gun, tanks, 
airplanes, uh, airplanes which would uh, develop very rapidly in the course of World War I, uh, tanks which were a product of World War I. Well, there is a recent book out on the start of the war, and I know you know the fellow, uh, Max Hastings, mm-hmm. but I just want to make one quote from his, his book, which seems a little bit ironic, and he's quoting a member of the British Expeditionary Force, like Captain Ernest Shepard. The Germans are brave to the point of utter foolishness. Implausibly, although himself British, he was a former member of the Alabama National Guard. And his quote, fancy a thousand men massed in regimental formation coming on unfalteringly to trenches manned by the finest shooting soldiers in the world. This is a very ghastly business, and there's never been its like before. In truth, of course, as Mr. Hastings points, there had been like it before, the U.S. Civil War. Yes. But the collective British consciousness, French consciousness, did not take that into account. No, no. Um, It's, of course, a a truism that the latter uh, half, let's say, of the U.S. Civil War, um, Siege of Vicksburg, uh, Petersburg and so forth, uh, gave an indication of where warfare might go as armies became more and more industrial in scale and uh, equipment. But to Europeans, the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War, uh, this was something uh, far away being fought between one group of amateurs and another group of amateurs. Even great military thinkers like uh, von Molke, Germany, uh, just regarded the Civil War as holding no possible lessons at all. For European warfare. And so that's why you've got, as Shepard described, the Germans marching forward in regimental formation just as they had for a hundred years. Pretty much. Certainly there was not in any of the European armies a clear understanding of just how deadly the new weaponry would make the battlefield. And that consequently, in order to survive artillery shelling, as well as rifle fire and machine gun fire, uh, troops would literally have to dig in, form foxholes, which we uh, connected up to form uh, trenches. They, they would have to burrow into the ground uh, because above ground had become a truly deadly place. I had the opportunity to go to the World War One exhibit at the Imperial War Museum in London, and I know you have too. It's an absolutely incredible exhibit where they, you actually get to walk through a mock-up of, of what a trench is like, and you mm-hmm. realize how far below the ground you are. Of course, they don't have you knee-deep in mud no. with rats actually <laughs> running across like it was. But for four years, what the men in the trenches had to endure was, it's, it's a wonder they all didn't have post-traumatic stress. Yes, indeed. And of course, this is uh, the conflict where we get the origin of what PTSD is now, um, then called shell shock. You say they're all burrowing below ground, which which they were, but the front is stable on the west and it, well, it moves a little bit and people are, generals are measuring victories in feet and yards. I mean, and everybody knew when the attack was going to come, right? There'd be horrible shelling, tremendous shelling. Then everything stops. Somebody blows the whistle and one side or the other jumps up and tries to go across no man's land. Pretty much, yes. Um, It was hard to achieve surprise in trench warfare, uh, that's for sure. But the generals, while they dreamed perhaps uh, in many cases of a grand breakthrough and stirring arrows on a map, encirclements and so on and so forth. The generals were, in reality, uh, engaging in basically an attritional conflict. Uh, The hope was, whatever losses you might sustain in attacking, uh, the enemy would sustain as many, if not more. And ultimately, you would bleed the enemy white and thereby achieve victory. Well, of course, the Western Front was stabilized, but there were lots of other fronts. The Eastern Front was very mobile. Indeed. The Russians advanced for a while, then the Germans advanced. Austria even gets whipped by Serbia initially. It doesn't. It does, yes. Austrian forces did not perform well in the First World War. Of course, one of the ironies here is 
when you've got an army that speaks six or eight languages and you've, you may have Slavs that you're throwing into the fight, they're not exactly going to be gung-ho. No, no, no. Various efforts were made uh, to try and get ethnic forces in the Austrian army to, uh, to defect, and not without some success, I might add. The Austrian military leadership was not the best. No. And then there's the Russian. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the largest power in Europe, largest army, and initially they did have success on the yes, Eastern Theater. Yes, Particularly against the Austrians. But yes. uh, against the Germans, well, that was a, a rather different matter. Before the war is over, the Tsar is gone, and the Russians have actually signed a peace treaty that gives huge chunks of the country to Germany. Yes, yes. And, uh, in early 1918, the German Empire seems to be very much uh, on the march, uh, uh, certainly eastward. They had been bled. You know, one of the stories about, you mentioned attrition. Well, the Germans were digging pretty deep because of the casual, their casualty rates. They had no ally to, to come to, to throw in. Yes, the Japanese had entered the war, the Turks entered the war, which then gave Winston Churchill a chance for his glory, yes. Gallipoli. Yes the, yes, the Dardanelles campaign, you know, uh, an um, early attempt at a silver bullet solution that failed. Which failed and which folks in Australia and New Zealand still remember, but not very kindly. Certainly in terms of... Uh, the popular idea that it was a campaign that was incompetently led by the British, but that Australian and New Zealand troops, the Anzacs, were the ones who actually did the fighting and paid the price in blood. They, quite frankly, found that the Turks were better soldiers than they thought they were. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, fighting on their home ground, as it were, under some fairly good military leaders, Kamel Atatürk, uh, for example, who later became leader of the new Turkey. Yes, uh, the, the Turks did pretty well. Then there's always the great sideshow in what we now refer to as the Middle East or Southwest Asia, mm. present-day Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and the like, with Lawrence of Arabia. Ah, uh, yes, yes. We've all seen the movie, I think. <laughs> the movie, at least from what I was not too far off the mark, it's Lawrence is a very strange duck. Indeed. But very successful. Yes, one could see him as one of the, uh, shall we say, fathers of guerrilla warfare. A lot of our listeners, Paul, might not be old enough to have remembered the movie Lawrence of Arabia, but basically his mission was to work with the Arabs, but primarily the, the House of Saud that would become the Saudi Arabia, uh, to rebel against the Ottoman Empire. Of course, first of all, to protect Egypt and the, and the Suez, but then in not in Lawrence's mind, but in the minds of those in the cabinet, if they succeed and we dismember the Ottoman Empire, then we can have our own client states in the Middle East, which of course is exactly what would happen. But it was very typical, as you said, guerrilla warfare. Yes. The movie Lawrence of Arabia and the many biographies of Lawrence uh, sometimes sort of give the impression that it was Lawrence leading the desert Arabs that brought down the Ottoman Empire in the modern-day uh, Middle East. It's not entirely true insofar as Lawrence's force you know, was essentially a harassing one and that the main battles were still being fought conventionally between British-led forces coming up from British-controlled uh, Egypt and uh, Turkish Ottoman uh, forces trying to defend Jerusalem and Damascus and so on and so forth. Well, and they were doing things that Francis Marion did. Indeed. I mean, yeah. it, they, they harassed rear areas. Mm -hmm. uh, they blew up lines of communication. Yes. There, was a, there was a railroad that was a very mm -hmm. key, yes. north-south railroad, and, of course, furnished intelligence to the British Army. Mm -hmm. And in, in that, they were admirably successful. Of course, we're talking about a very sparsely populated 
area. Yes, yes. But that has advantages in that if there's very little in the way of population outside of certain centers, then uh, there's nobody there to spy on you as you move around the great sand sea, so to speak. Paul, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Paul McKenzie of the History Department at USC about the onset of World War I. We've talked about 1914, and we've, we've gotten into the war, and we've mentioned the, the Eastern Theater. The West was at a stalemate, and both sides, certainly by 1916, seemed to have been, I mean, they were gasping. There was mutiny in the French army. In 1917, yes, indeed yes. there was. The question was, who's going to throw in the balance? And then the Kaiser helps out. Uh, yes, in, indeed. Uh, but uh, from the German perspective, uh, this didn't seem to be such a bad thing, namely to engage in unrestricted submarine warfare. The British had been blockading through their surface fleet, Germany, uh, since the start of the war, now Germany, using submarines, would blockade Britain, essentially starve it into submission. Uh, now, yes, it was true enough that uh, submarines were the rather delicate craft in those days, uh, and uh, they couldn't surface and stop and search and distinguish between a merchant ship of one nation or another. So, yes, that did uh, make the likelihood of sinking American ships much greater. Uh, and yes, that would probably force even President Woodrow Wilson to declare war uh, against Germany. But by the time the Americans would arrive, the war would be over. Britain and they were capitulated. kind of dismissive. They, they didn't even take into account America's industrial might. What they no, they didn't. Uh, there was a tendency perhaps just to bean count and look at the American army as it was, say, in 1916, which was minuscule, minuscule, inconsequential, poorly equipped, small, etc., cetera, uh, etc. Cetera. But you know, behind that, of course, uh, lay, as you point out, Walter, uh, America's industrial might. It might take months for American industry to gear up for the U.S. Army to bulk up. Uh, but once it did, it would, as proved to be the case, uh, become a quite formidable force. Woodrow Wilson was re-elected president in 1916, and his main campaign slogan was, he kept us out of war. Mm. Six months later. Well, um, as you say, you know, from the Allied perspective, uh, the European uh, allies, uh, the Kaiser's government uh, did them a big favor by behaving in such a way with unrestricted submarine warfare that even Wilson couldn't avoid declaring war. And there was also the infamous Zimmerman telegram. Uh, yes, that didn't help uh, either. Uh, and, and explain, let's explain that to our listeners, that you know, the, the Germans sent, sent a telegram to their ambassador in Mexico, basically tell the Mexican government if the Mexicans would sign up, they could get back everything they'd lost to the states. Yes, yes, indeed, which uh, yeah. again suggests that uh, the German foreign ministry was not, shall we say, terribly well aware of North American realities, uh, didn't really understand that Mexico was never going to be a serious threat to the United States and that all that this telegram, which was rapidly decoded by the British and passed on to the Americans. Uh, I was going to say, it got in, into American hands very it got, quickly. Yes, yes. Um, all it did was uh, just show that Germany seemed to be intent, despite Wilson's best efforts, to draw America into the war. And America did declare war, mobilized very quickly, instituted a draft, and, and that was to build up the army. But they also, there was a massive... Officer training program, 114 or 15, what we now call ROTC programs, were established all over the country. And interestingly, they did it at what you would call select schools, the Ivy League schools, Southern small liberal arts colleges, Davidson, Walford, places like they just didn't establish them everywhere. <laughs> and then they had the draft, America mobilized in a hurry. Yes, yes. I mean, over four million uh, young men in uniform overall. And here in South Carolina, that part of the war had a tremendous impact with the opening of large military bases, 
Fort Jackson, which is still with us, uh, but there was Camp Croft up in the upper part of the state. Uh, the Navy Yard in Charleston began to turn out ships. Um, I mean, it was had a, had a huge impact on this state. Mm-hmm. And in fact, once men in uniform went overseas, a number of young South Carolinians were awarded the Medal of Honor, including the only person of color in the U.S. Army who was awarded a Medal of Honor in, in World War One. But then there's the – when you talk about the civilian side of the war, and I know you've covered this in, in Great Britain. Let's talk about that for a minute, and then we'll talk about the civilian side here because there were a lot of similarities. There were a fair number of Germans living in England when the war broke out, especially in the entertainment and – Service industries. Yes, the, the uh, archetypal German waiter in hotel resorts and restaurants and, and that sort of thing. And it's true enough that uh, xenophobia, shall we say, uh, raised its rather uh, ugly uh, head. And there were some nasty incidents involving uh, um, Germans uh, who were assumed to be spies or even assumed to be German uh, of one sort or another. But you're, you're quite right that the civilian element to World War One is key. You look at the novels of Jane Austen, which are set during the Napoleonic Wars, you would have no clue that there's a war going on. And that's in part because, at least for that segment of a society being portrayed, the war didn't really impact them. World War One, uh, it's a different story. The war uh, directly or indirectly impacts just about everybody uh, on the home front, high and low, aristocrat or working class. Uh, and that's in part, of course, because of the needs of the military, young men, first of all, volunteering, and latterly, in the case of the, the British being conscripted into the armed forces and, of course, being killed. So, you know, husbands, sons, sweethearts um, are no longer there. And, and many of the units were recruited locally. So you had, you know, I've looked at some of the memoirs and, and a small town of a village or a county, two or three units from there. And they were, of course, they might have all been lost at wipers and Ypres, as the French would say, but I had Dean Winnefeld who taught diplomatic history. He always called it wipers. Wipers, yes. yes. In, uh, in Belgium, or yes. Somme. I mean, literally the whole unit would be, be wiped out. Yes, yes. Uh, this was one of the uh, mistakes, a mistake that I should add was also made, say, by the U.S. Navy in World War II, mm-hmm. of uh, grouping friends together, perhaps even f- members of the same family uh, together in one unit. Uh, of course, uh, the members liked this. You know, they were pals, pals battalions, uh, in the case of the British in the First World War. Uh, but it was also very dangerous because if that group had a very bad day, uh, which was statistically likely at some point on the Western Front in World War One, uh, then an entire community uh, could be devastated. And they were. Indeed. In fact, four or five of the South Carolinians who were awarded the Medal of Honor were all in the same unit. Mm. The war came home to people in a very brutal fashion in Europe. Yes. I think could safely say for those in the American South, that was not a strange experience. Mm. They had, they mm. had already been through that in 1861 to 18, mm-hmm. 1865. Now, I don't know that this was true in England, but in South Carolina, as the propaganda effort from the Wilson administration built up, and it was a propaganda effort, they made no bones about it, really clamped down on anybody who opposed the war. There was a newspaper in Charleston that was published by Irishmen, the Irish politicians, very important in Charleston, and it was shut down because they were critical of the English, our friends. There were German-language newspapers in South Carolina before World War One. There were congregations that required their Lutheran pastor to at least give a sermon once a year or once a month in, in German. All of that disappeared. You didn't dare talk about playing Beethoven. Bach was no longer played in the churches. Uh, kind of hard to do with religious music, but Bach disappeared. Dachshunds became liberty pups. Sauerkraut became liberty cabbage. I mean, <laughs> almost to the extreme. Mm. And 
it entered into politics. We had a politician, Cole Blees, who was a populist, popular with a lot of folks, but not with, with others. And he ran against Governor Manning, and he made on the stump a statement that sounds incredible today. He said, Manning is worse than the folks in Reconstruction. They only stole your money. He stole your sons. <laughs> for those who were killed in the war. And mm. that's, he didn't win. But I mean, the fact that with certain folks that had a resonance. Oh, yes. Uh, and th- this kind of xenophobia, I think, was uh, by no means something confined to America. It was true of the European powers as well. You know, uh, you know Beethoven is uh, unpatriotic in England. Jackson's too uh, highly suspect, and so on and so forth. Well, let's take a few minutes now and look at the war and the European map, actually the world map, indeed, as a result of what happened in in World War One. Let's start with with Europe, and you've got empires collapsing left and right. Indeed, you know th- this is uh, uh, the end uh, of the great European Central European monarchies. Germany, uh, as a result of defeat in World War One, uh, becomes. A republic, you know, the German Empire, is a thing of the past. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, even before the fighting completely stops, implodes, uh, and you get a rump Austria, a sep- entirely separate Hungary, and a raft of new states: Czechoslovakia, yeah. Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia. The borders shift. Some Germany loses some territory. They have to give the Russians back. What, yes, what they'd taken in but, 1917. But 18. then you get Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland all of a sudden appearing. That's right, yes. Um, the map of Europe uh, changes uh, enormously. And a lot of those changes are going to result several decades later in a cause for another war. Indeed. Uh, certainly, uh, while the peacemakers at Paris in 1919 did their best one could certainly see the seeds of World War II in the end and the uh, aftermath of uh, World War One. The seeds of future war in terms of the Treaty of Versailles were not only territorial about the fact there were Germans in what was the Czechoslovakian Republic. Mm-hmm. Alsace-Lorraine changed hands again. Again. But the financial punishment to Germany was onerous. Yes, although there's been argument about that, uh, that uh, reparations uh, may not have been quite as onerous as the Germans claimed uh, at the time. Perhaps uh, the best way of putting it is that uh, reparations were either too harsh or not harsh enough in terms of keeping Germany down. The idea was, and of course, the German army was limited, the German navy was limited. But whether they were too harsh or not harsh enough, within Germany, very soon after the war, the early years of the Weimar Republic was, we were betrayed. Absolutely. We did did not lose the war. No, we were stabbed in the back. I mean, we need to remember that uh, the end of the war, uh, the armistice of November of 1918, uh, occurred when German forces were outside the German border. Uh, There were no enemy forces fighting their way into Germany. So from a certain perspective, uh, it seems natural to think, well, you know, hang on, we've been told for years and years that we're doing well, we're winning, uh, and now suddenly we've lost? How did that happen? And of course, the map in the Middle East, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia thought it was going to get all that territory, and it didn't. The French took this, took Lebanon and Syria, or as client states. Iraq became a British client state. The whole question of Palestine. Mm. So World War One is not just sowing the seeds for World War Two; it's sowing the seeds for the troubles of the present day. Oh yes, you know, uh, one can't understand the modern modern Middle East uh, without understanding what happened in World War One in that region. Paul, Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. Anything you'd like to add for our listeners about World War I origins, conclusions before we sign off? I don't think so, except to remember that 
while from our perspective here in America, uh, World War One is just one of those those little wars. It's far away. It involves some American troops, but you know, it doesn't really seem to have much resonance. Uh, for Europeans, it does have resonance. It's a big deal, in other words. Uh, and as we've been talking about in the last few minutes, keep in mind that the world as we know it arose out of World War Everything from World War II arising from the outcome of World War I to the Middle East, as we've uh, spoken of, and its problems right down to the present day, uh, to the Cold War, stretching from the late 1940s to the early 1990s. I mean, after all, no World War I, no collapse of the Russian Empire, no rise of the communist state, no Cold War. Okay, so... It was the Great War. It most definitely was the Great War, at least up until the point where something even bigger uh, came along 20-odd years uh, later. Okay. Professor Paul McKenzie, the Caroline McKistic Dow Professor of History at USC, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. Covered a lot of territory in setting the background for the origins of the war, what happened during the war, and more importantly, I think, our discussion of what happened as a result of the war. The world in which we live in 21st century United States, our foreign policy, our diplomatic problems, a lot of that stems from the events that were the result of the Great War, 1914 to 1918. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.